Welcome to 1.37 p.m.'s Live from the Bar Cart. A look into the style, culture, strength, and grind of the modern day man. Eric Bergen, thank Hi. you for joining us on 1.37 p.m. Of course. Very excited to have you with us here today. Thrilled to be here. You are a multifaceted man. <laughs> Uh, you are, man. You 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 sing. You I just act, like that the man dance. part of it is what's multifaceted. Multifaceted I'm, performer. Okay, sure, I mean, whatever. You yes. are, man. <laughs> I'm multi- multifaceted as a man. As a man. Yes. I'm so excited to talk to you because you have like such a cool kind of story from what I was was reading and stuff. And it's all um, it's all it's all, all it's all it's all bull. Yep. You're from New York, right? You're born from, and from raised, raised in Manhattan. Here, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about like growing up uh, in Manhattan? I mean, it takes this. I think. People from New York are a certain breed, in, in my opinion. <laughs> I, I grew up mostly here as well, too. I, I moved around a lot, uh-huh. but I've been to L.A., I've been outside of the country, I've been to the South and, like, Dallas and, and Miami, and New York's kind of a certain breed of people. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's own, I mean, everywhere is its own breed. I think the thing about New York is that everyone wants to go to where you're from. You know, there are people who, a lot of friends of mine are from the South, specifically Texas, and, you know, that's its own breed, too. Oh, totally. It's just that they were all trying to get out of Texas <laughs> and come to New York. It's, um, y- you know, alongside with that, basically, it's an incredibly specific, exciting way to grow up. But it doesn't really prepare you for the rest of the world because there really is no other place like New York City. Even something as minuscule as driving. I mean, I didn't learn to drive until I was 22, Wow. I didn't get my license until I was 22. Most kids, it was like 15, right, something yeah, like that. Right, 16, 15, 16. Yeah. And so I, I didn't get it until I moved when I was living in Las Vegas when I was 22 years old. It's an incredibly exciting place to grow up, especially at the time that I grew up here in New York, watching the pre-9-11 New York kind of convert into the post-9-11. I mean, that was really an interesting thing to to be a teenager during. But I grew up around show business. I mean, I grew up on 20th Street in Chelsea. Times Square was literally my backyard. I remember, you know, incredible nights. Like, I, I wanted to see Prince at Madison Square Garden, which was, you know, exactly 12 blocks up from my house. And, and I just walked up there one night and walked to the box office and said, do you have any extra <laughs> tickets? And he, the guy said, yeah. And he gave me a front row seat for 40 bucks. Really? So it's like, you know, yeah, it's like yeah. things like that that can really only happen in, in New, New York. York yeah. Just, yeah. And I, and I I was an only child, so my entertainment was, you know, entertaining myself as best as I knew how. And it was the city had no, uh, no shortage of ways to to do that. And, and of course, two parents who encouraged and uh, uh, welcomed any wild, weird idea I had. Do you think the cities? Because obviously it's a city engrossed in the arts. Yeah, it's a different though. It's like California is very movie, very Hollywood. Where New York's very Broadway and show business. Kind exactly. Of, I, I mean, I've always said, especially for actors going into the business, Los Angeles, there are literal gates preventing you from you to do what you want to do, because those big movie studios have gates that your name has to be at a security entrance you can't get in (laughs) in new york it's literally just an old building these theaters they're just old buildings with a door that goes right onto the stage so it's it's a bit more accessible not just for the people who want to be in it but just for the people to partake in it it's less business and more art at least on the surface Mm -hmm. but new york just has an incredible energy you know i think it's changed certainly the rent really is just too damn high (laughs) i mean it really has just hurt a lot of what made new york great but you know it's still an incredible place. I'm very happy to be here again working because I wasn't for a while, but I love it. It's exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I mean, you've done TV, you've mm-hmm. done theater, you've done film. Mm-hmm. And I think those are three really different mediums when it comes to acting, right? And I don't. No? I actually think the opposite. Because the question that I'm always asked is, you know, what do you prefer 
most or, or what do you like doing the best? And my joke answer is always whichever one pays more. Right. Or I say the schedule of theater with the paycheck of television. But the truth of the matter is it doesn't really matter. It's kind of all the same thing. You're not really doing different acting styles for television or theater. I mean, if you are, I think you're kind of doing it wrong. Yes, you can play things down, you know, when there's a camera that's right in your face. Mm -hmm. You're not going to do a reaction to something for the back row of the theater to see. You don't need to. There's a camera right in your face. So there's a, a natural instinct that if you are in the moment, you'll know how to play the different mediums correctly. But I think uh, acting for theater, acting for television, for film, whatever it is, I think it's all kind of the same thing. You're always playing truth. If you're not, you have a bigger problem. But what I do love is that New York, much like London, is filled with actors who do both and can do both. Uh, Madam Secretary, which is the show that I'm on now, what I've been doing for the past five years, is a show that's made up primarily of theater actors because we're, we film here in New York City. And, and not only our, our series regulars, but our guest stars as well. They're all, they all come from the theater. Mm -hmm. um, that's something that you don't have so much in Los Angeles. I mean, it does exist, of course. There's wonderful people who started in the theater who live out there, of course. I just mean the ability to uh, film a TV show during the day and then go do a Broadway show at night. That's a, a special breed of people that really only exists in kind of in London and New right. York City. Do you find that um, since, you know, film and TV, is it less stressful or less pressure because you can kind of do as many takes as you want? Or whereas when you're live on a play or yeah. on stage, you got to hit it right then and there? No, for me, and this may just be because I started in the theater, but it's actually the opposite. When I go on stage, I feel very free. I just, whatever happens in that moment, you know, you've rehearsed it over mm -hmm. and over again. You've rehearsed this one piece of material over and over again. And then, of course, the performances themselves are doing the same piece of material over and over again. And there's something very freeing about being on stage doing that for me. And then, of course, whatever doesn't work, you get to fix it again tomorrow. And you kind of embrace whatever doesn't work. You find something new in, in the thing that was not what you were planning to do. Television, you know, you've only had a few days or whatever to memorize those lines. It's not like you ever really rehearsed it. You just kind of glanced at it and memorized it to your best ability. And then you go and do it. And you really don't have as many takes as you want. You have people that need to get home at night. You have a crew. You have hundreds and hundreds of people who are staring at you, hoping you get it right. So in fact, for me, it's the exact opposite. Huh. The pressure is in television just because you want to nail it in the two or three takes. And, you know, not just on television, there is, you know, there's a schedule, but even movies, you know, I, I did a movie with Clint Eastwood and he's, as a director, he's like uh, two or three takes and that's all you get. Like, and even if you don't nail it, he, you know, well, we're using that one. Right. You know, he likes that raw, right. unrehearsed That's Jersey thing Boys, anyway. right? That was Jersey Boys, yeah. We'll get into that because uh, yeah. I'm definitely interested about that. When you started, were you, you know, when you got the bite to, that you wanted to be an actor, mm -hmm. was it like, did you focus, like, I really want to do theater, I really wanted to film no. or was it just like I'm just going to do it and what what I get I get yeah I mean I started as a child actor I started when I was 10 years old and I didn't know what any of it was I wanted to be Michael Jackson I was obsessed with MTV when I was a kid and I just wanted to be on stage. I was obsessed with stage setups. I mean, there was a Playmobil toy when I was growing up that was like a circus setup. I loved it, but I would put together shows and then film them because I was obsessed with watching Michael Jackson concerts and all the pop acts of that time. And I was just obsessed with live performance concerts, set lists, how each song went into the other one, lighting cues, things like that. I became obsessed with the show of it all. 
even more so than the actual music. The performance? Yeah, the the act of putting on a live concert. I mean, even when I write music now, when I'm creating it or writing the song, I always think, well, where does this fit into my concert? Is this really, is this like an opening number or is this a close, you know? But that's how I think. So I just wanted to be a performer. I didn't really know, I didn't know anything about theater. I didn't know what musical theater was. I didn't know what movies really were. I just knew MTV. And I thought that's what it was going to be until finally uh, my mom brought me to uh, a Broadway show. It was big, the musical. It was a musical version of the Tom Hanks film Big. And it bombed on Broadway, but it changed my life because I got to see kids my age in the show performing. You know, it was kind of like the writers of the score tried to write this kind of pop score or songs for whatever the kids sang. So it had this kind of like MTV edge (laughs) when they performed. So it really clicked. All of a sudden you could, I could be a kid and be on stage and that was accessible as opposed to, you know, being a pop star. And then I was, my parents sent me to a theater camp that same year called Stage Door Manor up in the Catskills. Stage Door Manor is uh, a very well-renowned camp that has the home of everyone from Robert Downey Jr. to Zach Braff. I was there with Natalie Portman. I was there with Bryce Dallas Howard and Leah Michelle from Glee. And so it's an incredible place that is my second home. And uh, we put on, you know, full-on musicals, Broadway, full length of the show in two and a half weeks. My mother always said the first time she went up there for Parents Weekend to come see me, I was doing Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat <laughs> with Mandy Moore playing Reuben. And she got up and stood up and started applauding after the the opening number because she thought, well, that's amazing. They did that in three weeks. She didn't know there was a whole other two hours to go that we were going to do the full show. She thought we had just learned that. So that was kind of my intro to performance. And and I just kind of figured it out from there. I don't think anything in my career has ever been what I plan to do other than work. My entrepreneurial side projects, whether it be my music that I write and create, you know, things like that, those have been planned. But a lot of the rest of it has been walking into an audition room and kind of rolling with the punches, which is in its own way planned, right? Luck is what happens when opportunity meets preparation. So you can't really say any of it was full luck, you do your prep so that when those random opportunities show up, they can be life-changing. Talk to me a little bit about the auditioning process, because I think to do what you do, you really have to have a thick skin to be able to just <laughs> yeah. walk into a room with like, I don't <clears throat> know, 10, 15 guys look just like you, mm-hmm. all you know vying for the same thing. Mm-hmm. How do you stand out to the casting director? Mm-hmm. How do you make yourself... Like, I could never do it. Like, and you got to be able to deal with rejection and stick with it, really. Like, you right. know, and, and know that this is what you want to do with the rest of your life. Right. And no matter what, no matter how many rejections, just keep going until that, yeah. you said, the opportunity presents itself. Yeah. I mean, you know, it used to be that you really, it really was just you and the other guys in the waiting room. And now it's you, the guys in the waiting room, and also three social media stars that don't have to audition that are just, you know, they're just weighing offers to see if they can, you know, if they want to do it or not. There's so much as far as auditions go. I mean, gosh, they're not even auditioning anymore. You know, everything is self-tape. You know, everyone tapes on their iPhone and, and emails it into casting directors. Really? Wow. Oh, they're yeah. not even, you don't even go to the, it's rare. It's very rare to actually, for TV and film, you know, for theater, they still want to see you in the room. But so much of TV and film is self-tape. You used to be able to get a gauge on what was going on based on who else was there. And it really is so rarely that anymore. I mean, you just don't know. Sometimes they just do auditions just as a backup in case their big star doesn't accept their offer, you know, who knows what it is. But I think auditioning in general, yes, I mean, just as a, you know, just as a a ratio, I mean, you're getting, I mean, in my life, I've booked 10 jobs. Most of them were long running, but I've booked 10 jobs, maybe eight, maybe seven, as far as like actual like jobs, not a one night concert or thing like that, but like a job I've had, you know, maybe seven 
and I've and I've worked almost nonstop my entire adult life. But I say that I, I booked seven jobs. I've probably had three hundred auditions in the past. What's day. that ratio? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, it's 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 just you learn that the job is auditioning. I hate to say take the emotion out of things because I, I think you don't want to do that. But the rejection part of it comes with the that is more than half of it. That's the game. Right. That's the thing. That doesn't mean that, you know, if I brought my agent in here, she could tell you stories of me crying on the phone after I didn't get this job. I mean, you know, you there are certain ones you want. There right. are the certain ones that you really think. And then you, when you really think you're going to get it, too, and that's you already start to plan, you know, what you're going to wear to the opening <laughs> night party. And, and, you know, and you go you go to that right, place, yeah. you know, that's when it can be really bad. But I, the rejection, you know, there's that, again, that line about um, rejection is just uh, another opportunity, whatever version of that mm-hmm. line there is. And it is true. I mean, when rejection happens, the good thing is you get to move on to the next thing. All right, well, then let's go get this. Or, but, you know, there is, you have to, I, I, I wish actors would take on a little bit more of a, a business mentality sometimes that, you know, the great businesses of the world and the great, the people who run businesses, it was always about how they reacted to something. That was what made them be great. So when something bad happens to your company and you have employees to take care of and, and, and a company that you have to push forward, you move quick. You go to option B. You come up with the next thing as opposed to, you know, sitting and stewing over what happened. I think the same thing should be said for commercial artists where they should think of themselves as a business sometimes and, and kind of go, all right, you know, and then move forward. I think mindset, too. I think, you know. This, I think the career chosen also, it doesn't, obviously, it's not going to happen overnight. Like, we were talking to a couple weeks ago, one of the guests we had, Frank Grillo. He's like this guy, uh, actor, action star actor, uh-huh. who's been doing it for like 20 years, but he didn't see any success till right. almost 20 years into his career. Right. Like, he was working, working actor, right. but he, like, you know, he's, now he's in the Avengers and he's, uh, you know, with Mel Gibson in a movie and he's uh, in The Purge and he was like all these big action movies, mm-hmm. but he didn't get there until like a good 20 years until right. he got that one role. He was in uh, Warrior, that movie Warrior. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, he was the, the coach uh, uh-huh. that Joel Edgerton, Ed- right. Edgerton, is that his name? Uh, uh-huh. He was the coach for Joel Edgerton in that movie. Mm-hmm. And that role, like, people noticed him and from there on he was getting all these like action roles now that. Sure. In these, in, but it, it didn't happen to like 15, 20 years into it. Yeah. And you just got to, you know, if you love something, the, the point being like you, no matter what, you just yeah. keep doing it and you take all of it with it. Oh, yeah. Yes. All of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you had a podcast, right? That that, that that you interviewed Broadway stars, right? Tell me about that. Well, it was more than just Broadway. Yeah. I started a podcast and I mean, it goes back to my kind of obsession with show business and artists. And I always just wanted to know how how people did it, how, how it happened for them. I, I just wanted to know all the nerdy facts, not just the, you know, so how much do you love this show? Like, mm. I didn't want to do the kind of the, right. the stupid stuff. I wanted to know the nerdy stuff and I wanted to know like, how did it happen for you? How did you make that happen? Most uh, because I was curious, but also just because I wanted to know for myself. Right. And my general rule with show business, I mean, I'm not a well-rounded person. I will tell you that right now. I mean, I, I know a lot about one thing. <laughs> I, you know, that's that's about it. My rule is to just always stay in the room. I remember when I was in high school, I got a job selling T-shirts at um, Broadway shows because I just wanted to be in the theater. I just wanted to know how the whole night worked. You know, if I couldn't get on the stage, I wasn't getting a job in Broadway shows, but I, I just wanted to be in the room. So I got 
a job selling t-shirts at shows like Wicked and things like that. So I could really feel just like, like part I was, of the concessions. Yeah, like, running the concession uh-huh. stand. Yeah, yeah. So I could I could just know how it all worked and be in the room and feel the energy and, and do that. It was just a you know a great fun fun job. So when I was in college, I started this podcast uh, called Green Room Radio, and I started it with my friend uh, Dylan Heffler. And we, uh, it was right when podcast was starting. I mean, it was like, there was like five podcasts. One of them was Adam Curry's Daily Source Code. And it was, uh, I would listen to that to learn all about the podcasting mm-hmm. business. And this is pre-iTunes right. even carrying podcasts. And no one knew what it really was, but there were some people who, in the in the business, who did and were kind of forward thinkers and who who, who wanted to get their clients on podcasts and things like that. And so, I, you know, I, I got whoever I could. Really, it was just an excuse to get free CDs. You know, you'd get on the right. publicity list and you'd yeah. get the free copies of, I remember when, I remember we got an advanced copy of the new Ben Folds album and it arrived in my dorm room, you know, in the mail. And Dylan and I looked at each other, looked at each other and we were like, oh my God, it worked. Like, <laughs> our master, this is so stupid. Like, wh- how do we have this? This is crazy. Right. But, um, it was great. Yes, I talked to. I mean, I had everyone on from. I had Broadway people on. I had writers. I remember uh, I had the writer of uh, uh, The Adventures of Pete and Pete on because awesome. they had like just put it out on DVD, and that was a show that I grew up on. So I talked to him. I talked to Donny Osmond. Wow. He was. I talked to him for like thirty minutes. He was so well. He's he's always been very kind of tech savvy and mm-hmm. always on the forefront of keeping the internet alive for his fans and things like that. So he really wanted to talk and he was great. I mean, just, it, I did like 30 something episodes. I mean, I, I don't know what I was doing, but you know, it, it, it kept me moving. I mean, it certainly kept it, kept me talking about it and curious. And you were, in, and, I mean, you were technically in the business. You were talking to these people, you were in networking, making connections. Absolutely. <laughs> did that lead to, to the Jersey Boys gig? No. Is that something like that? I no. thought I read something where... No. I mean, it was funny how, you know, a lot of the, the publicists who are, who are still in the business from when I was doing that in college, and I would use them for, like, uh, uh, publicity tickets to Broadway shows, you mm-hmm. know, free press tickets. And then all of a sudden, when I started being in these shows, these publicists were now representing me. And they'd be like, why do I know your name? I was like, well, I was actually on the other side of the rope. I used, I'm like, oh my God. You know, there was a little bit of that. But no, there wasn't a direct connection to that. It's just that I was, uh, uh, to Jersey Boys, just that I was, um, I did that in college and I dropped out of college two years into college. And right out of that, I started the national tour of, of Jersey Boys. How did you get the Jersey Boys gig, the, the Broadway one, the musical? Well, I never did the show on Broadway. I got the national tour. So I was 20 years old. I had I had just dropped out of, out of college and I went to an audition. I just got called for an audition. And originally they wouldn't see me because they didn't know who I was. They didn't, you know, they were seeing their usual suspects and they, they kind of weren't finding what they were looking for. And uh, I walked into an audition room on a Monday and the following Monday I had the role and it, it launched my career. That was the break. The, uh, that was the break. uh That was the break at my adult break. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. Cause I was in, I was in kind of a weird place cause I was working as a child actor, teenage actor, whatever you want to say, but I was never really I was never on Broadway. I was never famous. I was just kind of a working actor, young actor here and there. And then, you know, you're dealing with braces and acne and and weird height. I looked older than I was and I wasn't over 18. Like there was a weird space there where I just really wasn't working. But my agent's manager held on to me and uh, went went to college. What are they going to do with me there? But, you know, I came back and they, um, I went to an audition and it launched my, it changed my life, it launched my career. I went on the road for, opened the national tour of Jersey Boys, opened it, did the tour for about a year. Can you explain to me, so what's the, so there's a difference between the actual musical 
and then national tour. Is no, it's the same. It's the exact same thing. It's just that there's a road company that takes the show on the road. Correct. Okay. It's it's many times. Uh, yeah, it's it literally if if we closed your eyes and blindfolded you and you didn't know where you were, you would think you're in a Broadway. It's the same thing. Theater. I mean, yeah, there's there's differences like you'll probably I think like Beauty and the Beast, like a show that's been around forever, you know, as they have toured it for that many years, it starts to maybe go down in quality and like the size of the sets and things like mm-hmm. that. They, they start to make it cheaper scale to scale it down a little They scale mm-hmm. it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this was this was the Jersey Boys. We the big national tour opening. The show had just won all the awards on Broadway less than a year prior. It was you know, it was still, this was like the Hamilton of its, of its day. Right. Um, so no, it's literally just a recreation of the Broadway show. We had some of the same cast, same director, same choreographer. It's all the same. Uh, so we opened it in San Francisco. We toured all around the, the, the tour, uh, the tour is still going to this day. I did the first year of it and then I opened the show in Vegas and I did the Vegas company for two years and then I was fired <laughs> and then I moved to Los Angeles auditioned you know for tvs and movies and blah 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 i got some stuff didn't get some stuff then was diagnosed with cancer oh my god and that's a lot to take in yeah (laughs) then dealt with that and then my first audition back after auditioning after uh, dealing with cancer was for the jersey boys movie got that filmed that and then walked into an audition for madam secretary done that for five years and here we are Wow. <laughs> As I said, it's only been a few jobs. Right. It's all been very long jobs. But I mean, that that's a testament, I guess, to your to your skill as an actor that you've been a part of productions that last and that they, they you know, obviously they keep you on. So actors start a, a TV show. It goes for a season and then it gets cut or goes for a couple. doesn't even yeah. make it past pilots. Yeah, or, I don't know, you know that's a testament to my anything. I mean, I hate to uh, listen. I'll take any praise you want to <laughs> give me, but I don't know how much that part of it has anything to do with my talent. I heard Zach Braff talk about this in an interview. He said, you know, it's winning the lottery. It's, yes, being good and talented helps you win a few more lottery tickets, helps you get a few more lottery tickets. Being good looking helps you get a few more lottery tickets. Being funny, all these kind of things end up, you you get more tickets. Hmm. But whether you get that winning ticket that gets you the job and thing and fame and all that stuff, that is luck of the draw. And that's the weirdest part of being a commercial artist. It just is. And I think that's why it's weird for entrepreneurship to meld with being a commercial artist, such as an actor, because so much of it is not in your control. You can't, I know people who have booked four or five major starring roles in television shows, pilots, that in a row didn't get picked up or got picked up and bombed after the third episode or got canceled after. They never got up the ladder, even though they were starring on major television shows that no one ever saw. There are people who have been in tons of indie movies that have never been released or got released and went nowhere. Yeah. So you can make it, you can work a lot in this business, but nothing ever come of your name or your fame or whatever. That is the weird part of this business that I think is very hard to correlate entrepreneurship with it. Because in general, entrepreneurship, the whole idea is you are in control of your own destiny. You are in control of your success, or at least you can, you can try to be mm-hmm. as much as possible. And that's the, the hard part about meshing that with being an actor which is why I do other things other than be an actor because I want to have control over the art that I make. I'm happy to 
give myself over to CBS for 22 or 23 episodes a year. We do really great work. We're so proud of the show and it bought me an apartment. But then there's other things I want to do, things that I want to say that I want to be in control of. Talk to me about your uh, <clears throat> your musical career. Well, that's, that's one of that's those the things. other side. That's, yeah, that's... yeah, I mean, like, I, it goes back to, I mean, music is my first love. However, it's not, it will never be the thing that puts food on my table. It's never going to be the thing. I'm not going to be a billboard. Never say never. Well, I'm I'm 32. <laughs> I think it's getting younger and younger. I mean, pop stars, you know, you're like a fetus if you're a pop star now. You know, I mean, someone said someone said to me the <laughs> right other day, the we were talking about Sean Mendez and he was he's like, "Yeah, but he's getting old." So, you know, it's like I'm sorry, what? Sean <laughs> Mendes is getting old. Is he even like 22? I don't like think Sean Mendes is legal. So, no, I mean, Sean Mendes is, is he's great. He's fantastic. But the fact that someone said he was old is like, what? But no, and the type of music that I like to make, it's not what's on the top of the charts. But that's okay. It kind of takes the pressure off, right? But I love making music. I love performing. I love being on stage. I love doing concerts, as I said before. The only way really to do it was for me to do it on my own. And I've had record label deals offered to me. I had a deal right on, I was going to sign. And then you read through it and you're like, why am I doing this? What is the point of this? In my specific instance. Um, and I also don't have the time to give, you know, people think that you can do certain things quote-unquote, on the side, like music. And you, you can't. Music, being a, a, a pop act, a, a pop musician, you know, that's a lot of hours on the road at 6 a.m. going to radio stations and promo and getting on a bus and, and, and hawking your wares. And to what end? To what end? I'm not interested in restarting my career. I am who I am. But what I, I, I do like uh, the ability to make art the way I want to and that, that is for me music is a major part of that so I just decided to I'll be a pop star on my own time with my own money and I'll just do it myself and you know what comes of it is what comes of it again like I said you know I'm not performing at the VMAs but I don't care I don't really have time I guess you have the luxury you don't have to worry so much about album sales and selling Correct. tickets, right. you know, because you have another facet of your career that works and you can kind of you've kind of found a way to fund your dream through another part of your dream. Correct. <laughs> well, but and that's what it is. I mean, isn't that what any business is? I mean, for any business, if you're just counting your profits as opposed to, you know, figuring out how to put those profits back in to, to do it again, you know, you're you're doing the wrong thing. I mean, uh, I don't do what I do to collect cash. I do it to do it again. <laughs> right. <laughs> in a weird way. To keep doing it. To keep doing right. it. Yeah. I mean, I love what I do. Uh, um, I really love what I do. I really, really love what I do. And I think that's what makes all the difference no matter what you're doing. So it, for me, it's always about putting money, experiences, time, all of that goes towards the next thing. Mm -hmm. You know, and then eventually, I guess eventually you stop, but... You know, I don't know what the barometer is for. I don't know how you're supposed to know when to stop. I don't think you ever do if you love it. I guess, right. I mean, the whole, right, you know, the whole idea of the American dream and the whole idea of retirement is something that is so bizarre to yeah. me because it basically says this awful thing that you're doing, we promise you get to stop at some point. We promise you get to stop. You just have to do it a little bit more. 
And that to me is, well, if you love what you do, why would you want to stop? I get you want to spend, you get to a certain age, you want to spend time with your kids, your grandkids, your family, you want to do some things that you didn't have the time to do. All that is fine. But I never really got on board with that whole, um, whole idea of retirement, no matter what it is you do for a living. So I, yes, my job does give me the ability to fund some of these side projects, but I don't know that if I if I was making less money, if I didn't have a job that was paying me regularly, regardless of what you make, the nice thing is having a regular paycheck. I don't even know if I wouldn't do it. I would find a way. I mean, I, I, I didn't inherit any money. I, I wasn't given any money by my parents. I always found a way to make money. I always found a way to get a job. Like I said, it was I, I went back to selling T-shirts at Wicked. I got paid. I got paid pretty well, whatever the hourly rate was. But... I did it because I learned a lot. I was being paid to learn how a night at the theater worked, how I got to, I got to watch Wicked every night. Now that's, okay, you got to watch Wicked every night. It kind of sounds ridiculous, but I got to watch actors on stage do it night after night and see how they get it up again for a different audience and make it seem like the first time, you know, they perform, which is something that you can't be taught. You have to kind of... It's actually priceless. Own. It's priceless, and I was being paid to do it. I sold a T-shirt to Prince. That is, that's true. You sold a T-shirt. All right, I it's my second story. Prince story. Tell me how you sold a T-shirt to Prince. He bought it. He was with some girl, some very tall woman at intermission, I think. Is it Wicked? At Wicked, he bought a T-shirt from me. It was crazy. It was did like, you say like you're the greatest artist of all time? No, like, no. <laughs> did you say anything? But I did instinctively know that he was an extra small. I knew that. <laughs> wow. And and I don't want to jump back for too much. Uh, back to the music. You yeah. just released Better in the Dark a couple weeks ago, right? Yeah, that's the second single. That's the second yeah. single. Is this part of a full album, or do you just drop like singles whenever you feel like dropping them? I, that it, the latter. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know that. I mean, I love albums. I still. I, I don't think we listen to albums anymore. Yeah, agreed, I yeah. think we listen to old albums as albums i'll still put on carol king's tapestry nirvana's Nevermind. you know albums that i grew up with albums that i learned as albums i still listen to in full but new music it's not how we digest music anymore so if you put out an album you unless you are a major act like a taylor swift or a sam smith or someone where you have a label behind you to be part of the the pop machine, you know, you kind of blow your wad in in one drop if you're putting out a 10-song album. And then you got to make people, you know, keep listening to it over the course of a year. If you're doing it independently, it's a better idea to treat each song as an album. Treat each song as its own release. And I suppose that could get tiring too, you know, because your fans or your, your, your audience may at some point go... Oh my God, you know, stop the the promo of it all. But for me, I can, because there's no schedule, I'm not putting together a tour. I'm treating it as, okay, I have something to say now and um, I'd like to show it to you. I think the ecosystem is different too. You're right. People don't consume music the same way, especially with streaming now. Right. and, And it's not the same concept as it was right i mean i don't and listen i mean if you if you're trying to go into something to make money which is fine but if you are trying to go into something to make money don't do music i mean just don't there's no money in making music except for you know there's 10 people who make money in music i mean of the names that we know there's a lot of behind the scenes people the music business makes a lot of money Mm -hmm. but the record business doesn't and and certainly to be a recording artist does not not, um so again, it's really for doing it for 
other reasons. And I just like writing music. I love writing songs. I love collaborating with other writers. I love writing by myself. I love songwriting. So, you know, it's a nice thing to kind of hear it happen. And then I got to do fun things, right? You know, I got to, I got to premiere my song on the radio, on the, on the radio station that uh, I listened to every morning growing up. Which one? Uh, Z100? Z100. Oh, cool. You know, so Elvis I got, Duran? Elvis has That's become a very good friend, and I asked him, I said, I want this dream to come true. And he gave me like 20 minutes of airtime to talk, and we sat just like we're sitting That's right awesome. now, and it was just a lot earlier in the day. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I got to premiere my new single on the show. And, you know, and all of a sudden, yeah, it's like I'm almost near 200,000 Spotify spins That's at this awesome. point. So, you know, so I had $30. And you fund these? Like the recording, the production, you produce it, you fund it all on your own? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And I realize that not everyone is able to do that. I can hear people listening right now to this saying, yeah, well, screw you. You know, I don't have the... But there's, no, there's but the, always a way. There's yeah. always a way. Uh, like you said, there's no lack of hard work here. You put the work in to find success somewhere where then you can fund another passion. And I think Yes, and by the way, I, I was given opportunities that would have upfronted the money. There, right. I was given opportunities where they said, we'll pay for it, but it means this, this, and right. this. And that's what being self-funded, that's what I bought back, was the freedom to say, no, 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 I, I have this, this is mine. I get to own this forever. Many people, I, I had opportunities to have, have it funded, but I would have lost all control. All ownership. Too. All ownership, yeah. all yeah. control. And if there's anything I learned from the Jersey Boys story, Bob Gaudio, the character that I played, he wrote all of those classic Four Seasons songs. You know, hold on to your copyrights, oh, yeah. and he has the the mastering and the and the, the the masters and the publishing for all those songs, and it made him very wealthy. So I learned I learned from that. I learned from that. I don't know if my song will ever do as well as Oh What a Night, but you know, here's the hoping. <laughs> Tell me about making the the film with Clint Eastwood. What was that experience like? What was Clint Eastwood like? Did you get to meet the Four Seasons, like the whole thing? Yeah. So Frankie Valli and Bob Gaudio, who are the two main Four Seasons, I've spent a lot of time with over the years, and we've gotten to know each other. We've spent many dinners together, and and long nights, and just amazing times together. And they're, they're two wonderful guys. And uh, Frankie's still on the road. You know, has like a <laughs> hundred dates this year. He's just, he's, you know, he just doesn't stop. And Bob keeps going as well. I mean, he's uh, an incredible producer and writer. And, and his story is, I, I just love him. I love both of them. And making the movie was surreal. I mean, I used to think about when we were doing the show of Jersey Boys, you know, sitting backstage thinking, gosh, when they make the movie of this, you know, who's going to play my part? You know, Zach Efron, you know, who's going <laughs> to. And um, never thought of you. Well, I, I don't know. You know, looking back on it, it's like I'm such a entrepreneur producer in my brain that I always think of it as me because I think I'm a positive thinker as opposed to a negative thinker. I think very much like, oh, when it's me in there, you know, and then certain things you come, you come to reality and I never let go that it was me and it just happened. I mean, it was just one of those bizarre things where the thing that you thought about all those nights dreaming about things like that. But you could say the same thing for, you know, people who've won the Oscar, right? Every single person who has won the Oscar, everyone, maybe 95% of them, if not all of them, practice their Oscar speech in their bedroom growing up. All of us who do what we do practiced a version of this or imagined a version of this in our bedrooms as kids. And anyone who says that they didn't are lying, mostly. <laughs> so for me, the fact that 
happened. We made the movie. It was just crazy. The funniest part was doing the show. It was all two-dimensional sets. You know, every set for like the bowling alley scene was just a sign that came down and said bowling alley, you know, and it was uh, a couple of microphones set up and that meant it was a stage. You know, theatrical, it's, it's all theatrical. It's what the imagination can do. All of a sudden, those scenes were coming to life. We showed up at the bowling alley. We were at a real bowling alley. You know, that's those kind of bizarre moments stick in my my mind but of course working with clint was unbelievable i mean he's just such a smart guy and he's such a kind funny man very warm but just so smart i mean the smartest thing he did was he he hires the best people and then lets them do their job he doesn't micromanage the ego doesn't get in the way and i think we can all learn a lot from that and it's why his movies come in under budget and ahead of schedule and not everyone is a brilliant movie but you know He's made a lot of them, and the movie studio has handed him the keys to do what he wants to do. He knows how to tell a great story. He knows how to tell a great story, absolutely. He's one of our most prolific storytellers. Yeah, it was like fantasy camp some days. Pulled in, my car, the gates opened. Going back to those gates I was Mm -hmm. talking about, you know, you're underneath the Warner Brothers uh, water tower on the lot in Burbank, parking space with your name on it. And, you know, you're on the old Warner Brothers sets, the, the famous... We were on the same soundstage at one point that some of the old Busby Berkeley movies in the 30s were filmed in. Wow. It was quite a dream come true. The movie wasn't the success that I was hoping it would be. I don't care. I mean, that movie means so much to so many people. I got stopped about it all the time. It's on HBO all the time. I mean, I got to be part of something really, really special. It's played all over the world. I mean, that's the nice thing about making art is that it kind of gets to live on forever, especially filmed art. And and I'm still not tired of the music. So, you know. I mean, the the music (laughs) will live on forever. Yeah. Do you have a cool Clint Eastwood story? Like, I don't know, he pulled you aside and... I mean, everybody's got this vision of Clint Eastwood, this rugged, tough exterior, like, really, like, harsh. But uh, everything I read is that he's, like, the nicest guy in the world. You know, when he... Well, he's the, rugged, the dirty I mean, hair, the dirty hairy aside, you know. And it's like, oh yeah, no, no, it's not that. I mean, and I think it's the voice too. You know? It's the voice. Yeah, there, there is that. <laughs> yeah. There's a, yeah, there is a little bit of that. I will say, my Clint Eastwood impression is kind of what got me the Madam Secretary job. Really? Yeah, I was walking into my my first. You know, they always say do something memorable in the room. And uh, the director of the pilot, David Semmel, saw that I on my resume when I walked in the room. We just filmed the movie, and it hadn't come out yet. And he's, he's said, what you, he asked what you asked. I said, what was it like working with Clint? And I kind of did my Clint thing in, in my Clint impression, and it got a laugh out of him. And that's why I was brought back for the callback. And he kind of made me, he made me do it again at the callback. So that was like my thing, right? So I kind of can say that Clint got me two jobs, <laughs> the, the Jersey Boys movie and Madam Secretary. In the movie, we were doing a scene. It was during the scene where uh, my character loses his virginity. And I was in a hotel room, kind of ignoring all the girls out in the party. And I'm watching TV when this beautiful girl comes in the room to seduce me. And I said, all right, what am I, what am I watching on TV? He's like, I don't know, it's green screen. We'll, we'll put something in later. I said, oh, come on, you have to have like a Hitchcock moment. He said, what do you mean? He's like, well, you need a, how about one of your old episodes of Rawhide? or something <laughs> like an easter egg in there yeah like just you know young clint eastwood you know something from from that would have been on tv at that time <laughs> and he kind of laughed about it thinking you know so whatever and then i saw the first cut of the movie in a screening room and it was in there and he actually <laughs> listened to me he's very kind and i would work with him again in uh, in a heartbeat and i think he's misunderstood i think you know the thing he did at the rnc with the whole uh, empty chair thing, mm-hmm. has kind of put this weird thing with artists about him that people want to make fun of him 
for some reason, but you know, I spent many hours with him and whoever you think he is, I promise you it's not, right. it's not that. You've played so many like different characters, Madam Secretary, Jersey Boys. You're you're in Waitress now too, right? No, or, I did it this summer, this summer on Broadway. Oh, yeah. Okay. Is there a favorite? Like, is there a favorite character that you really <laughs> just enjoyed playing, or is it just like you said? It's a, it's a um, job. Like, I, always, like I go to the. I don't think of it as just like a nine to five job. I do fall in love with a, a lot of the, the the people that I play, but I more often think about the full experience. I, I think about the script, the actual doing of it. That's what I tend to think of as favorites. Favorite characters, you know, it's hard because they're so... I've had such different lifespans with all of them. I mean, Blake, I play a Madam Secretary. I've done for five years. That's what I do every day. But I've never done the same thing twice. Bob Gaudio in Jersey Boys, I played, you know, for a thousand performances saying the exact same lines. You know, it's so ingrained in my body. Waitress, I did this summer for about two and a half months. I loved every second of it, but I miss it. I feel like I didn't do my full run of it. It was such a short run that I was like, I still wish I was doing that show. So I think of full experiences. I mean, Jersey Boys was, Jersey Boys may be the top thing only because it was such a time in my life. Mm Mm-hmm. I was 20 years old when I started, and it taught me so much about the doing of this all, but it taught me so much about the business, being fired and then being rehired and and paying your dues, that, you know, that whole thing. And I think it's the thing that, you know, has certainly, it's felt the most me, that character has felt the most me in my bones. Blake is someone who I'm constantly learning about because it's constantly being written. You know, Blake is, I don't know what I'm doing in the next episode. And I, I don't mean that to be like, you know, those actors who go on talk shows and they're like, oh, well, you have to find out. Right. And like, no, I actually, I had, yeah. I have no clue. Right. Whenever they write the next episode and it shows up in my email box, I, there have been times where something will show up in my email box, uh, a new script, and I'll read something from my character and uh, I'll go, really? But I thought, I thought he was, you know, this or whatever. Mm-hmm. And oh, no, we're going a different direction. Okay. You know, and you just, you kind of go with it. So Blake is someone who I, you know, I love and, but it's, I don't fully know Blake <laughs> until the end until of the series. You, yeah. yeah. Well, um, it's been great having you. Thanks. It's really, really cool to hear all the stuff you're doing. What, what's next? What do we, what, I mean, I know Madam Secretary is going on. Yeah. Madam um, Secretary is going on. Anything else that we can see you in? Uh, or? New music. Uh, you know, I have five songs for the time being that, that are done, recorded and, you know, ready to go that I'm going to kind of... You're going to sprinkle them out there? I'm going to sprinkle them out. <laughs> right. So there's that, and there'll be some new music starting, uh, you know, at the beginning of next year. And I'm always doing concerts. So December 28th and 29th of this year, 2018, I'll, I'll be performing in uh, Los Angeles at uh, the Catalina Jazz Club and then New Year's Eve with the Cleveland Pops, the Symphony Orchestra. So I'm always doing that. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm going to try to get back into the theater. I have to find a job for my hiatus next <laughs> right. summer. So if anyone has any leads on a, on a gig... <laughs> Where can we find you? What? Uh, where can we follow you? Uh, on all the social media at Eric Bergen. I just spell my name weird because my parents decided to be artsy in right. the '80s. So it's E R I C H B E R G E N. Just don't call me Erich. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is 1:37 p.m. If you want to own the future, start this minute. Live from the Barkhart is a Gallery Media production.